Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. Blessed and Holy Father, draw us. Draw us and we will run after you. Pull us from the depths of our being, Lord. For the, for the places we hide, the places we've claimed to say sanctuary, Lord. Draw us into your presence. And Lord, we will, once again in a glimpse of you, will run after you. Lord, may we do that today. May the words that we, we process, the text that you've given us, Lord, may the scriptures seep deep into our being, Lord. May we be different because of our experience with you today. May we see your power. May we see you work. May, you, may we see you be God in our lives in ways we haven't experienced, Lord. Draw us, Lord. We will chase you in your holy and wonderful name. We pray, Amen, Amen, Amen. Welcome, River City, everybody. Um, we've been going through the Book of Acts for some time now. The Book of Acts, um, and Daniel last week talked, told you guys that I'll be piggybacking off of some of the stuff that he was working with, and uh, we will be doing that. But I just want to first talk about how much I love studying this book, largely because we get to go back and study. And listen to some of the work that our forefathers and foremothers have done to create this infrastructure of the church, right? That, 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 that what we now stand on, our ability to worship in the way that we do, has so much to do with what took place during the time in Acts. And we get to go back and see that they wrestle with some of the same things we wrestle with. And they're wrestling with some of the same things that we continue to wrestle with. Amen? Amen. So um, we're going to be reading... Um, a, and by the way, my son is kind of bogus, trying to put me on blast. Uh, uh, <laughs> I just got to let you know, son. All right. <laughs> no, um, it was a stressful thing. Um, I, I was like, so I do this little checklist when I'm preparing for a sermon. And one of the things that I remember, one of the strongest rebukes I ever got um, from Daniel when I, after I was preaching. And Daniel doesn't rebuke anybody. Everybody knows that. So, But the strongest rebuke I ever got, I, I, I forgot my Bible one time, right? And, um, and and I like made a joke about it on the uh, from the pulpit, and then he, I got off the stage. You know, I thought I killed it. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I got off the stage, and Daniel was like, "Don't ever do that again." And I was like, and I was like, "What?" And he was like, "Don't leave your Bible." And at first, I thought it was well. It just looked unseemly. It looks like it looks bad. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like you're unprepared, like you're not concerned about it. But it's because of the weight that he holds the scripture. You know, it's because of the value that he holds in God's text. And that, was, that, that thing always sticks with me. That, that one moment always sticks with me. Every time I study, I'm like, I'm carrying something pretty heavy. So, um, so yeah, my son was right. I was stressed out. I'm carrying the word of God. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so it's got to be stressful. So, yeah, please stand with me. We're going to be reading from um, Acts 10, 44 through, uh, all the way through 11, 18. Um, it's an unconventional reading of the text, but we're going to see what we can do with it, all right? All right. And this is what it said. So right prior to this, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. All right. So it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. 
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter was astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Does that happen? You interact with Jesus, all of a sudden you want to hang out longer, right? That's what it does. The apostles and the believers throughout um, Judea heard the Gentiles also have been receiving, uh, had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up um, to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of, an uncircumcised, uh, of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Starting, starting, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying. I'm sorry. I was in the city, uh, city of Joppa praying. And in, and, and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and I saw four footed animals and the earth and the earth's wild beasts, reptiles and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up and it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea uh, stopped at the house where I, was, uh, where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no uh, hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them. As it, as it had come on us at the beginning, at the beginning. Then I, then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections. And praise God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. That preached by itself, didn't it? I don't have to say nothing. <laughs> but look at the text. It's, 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 a, it's a beautiful text. So, so, so when I'm not studying and I'm not uh, working, when I'm not with my family, I tend to indulge myself and watch some movies here and there or some TV. And when I do, I have to watch, like the TV, it's not just any movies or TV or anything like that. It has to be impactful. It has to be um, like a thriller. And the reason for that is that I have to be intellectually engaged in it for me to really like it. It has to like, I have to like have to guess the ending. I have to have to know who, like find out who the bad guy is or something like that. And so I can't watch a movie that doesn't have a real intrigue on it, except like Avengers or something like that. And that's just candy for the brain or something like that. But nonetheless, I, I like, I, whenever I watch a movie, I have to, I have to watch um, something that's going to provoke me into, to, to, to ask questions. And for the most part, I enter into movies figuring out things like I'm pretty good at, I'm like 80% accurate you know like I can know the ending of a movie before it happens I can I was probably the one person who figured out in sixth sense that Bruce Willis was dead and those of you that didn't see it he's uh he's dead <laughs> so, uh, and, and, uh, it's like a, it's like a it's a statute of limitation right I can start talking about this stuff <laughs> uh, 
Nonetheless, so I, like, I, I guess these things, and, and I, I find great pride in it. It's so much so now that I move on to guessing dialogue. I start to guess what people are going to say next. You know? And so I like to think of myself as a movie savant, but that, that's not really the case. It might be that I just have too much time on my hands. Um, however, I do that when I read scriptures, too. So I came to this text looking for who's the bad guy? Who, who's the person that's messing this thing up? Who's the person that, that's, that's at fault for this, this, this interaction? And, I, and typically, I do that largely to try to find out where am I in the text, right? And usually I, I cast myself as the good guy, because who doesn't? And, and, um, and for the most part, I, I try to stay away from being a bad guy in the text. And, um, but with this text, it was a little difficult, because I kind of resonate with both of these characters in the text when we talk about Cornelius and um, Peter. And so, um, so I'm going to give a context to what Peter was talking about when he came back to talk to his people. Uh, he, he had just come back from Joppa. Um, There's a man by, by the name of Cornelius who was sitting in his house praying while Peter simultaneously was praying on a rooftop, and, and they got this message from God simultaneously. One, um, Peter was told, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And the other man, um, Cornelius, he was sitting in his house, and he was praying and having conversations with God, and God was like, look, you need to come talk to this dude, Peter, so that you, can, you and your household can be saved. All this stuff happened to take place, and, and come to find out Peter's a racist, and everyone's like really frustrated with that, right? But when, when, when you listen to the text, like, and you find you put it in context, you're like, okay, you can kind of understand how all this stuff plays out. So, for instance, Cornelius was a man who, by and large, was a, uh, was was marginalized according to, to tradition and, and text. Right? For the most part, he couldn't enter into the temple courts. He would have to sit on the outer ring, so he would have never been able to enter into the temple courts. And so, like, he, even if he was a believer, a, a devout believer, he didn't have access or proxy to God. He didn't have any, even even opportunity to God. And um, the, the religious elite deemed him unclean, unfit to even sit in his crib, to sit in his house with him. You couldn't eat a meal with him. And so now you're, you're thinking, like, how is this man ever going to get an interaction with, with the gospel? How is he ever going to have a conversation with God if the rules are you can't sit down with people like him? You can't have a conversation with people like him. You can't engage with people like him. You can't do life with people like him. And so for the most part, you would look at Cornelius and you're like, absolutely, this man represents the margins. And so when I look at this text, I'm like, I must be Cornelius. I must be Cornelius. But then when you look further and you think deeper about it, you got to realize they went to Caesarea. It's an occupied state. Roman soldiers took the land that, that Peter's ancestors lived on. Took the land. Peter's, land. Peter's ancestors lived on it. They took the land, renamed it after their, their god, their emperor, Caesar Augustus, they renamed it, made it a province where a hundred, hundreds and hundreds of soldiers dwell, Roman soldiers dwell. So the, the very land that he was sitting on, the land that God was calling Peter to, was, was a monument to the oppression of Peter's people. It was a statue erected, celebrating the oppression of his people. Some of us know what that's like. So he, he was called to a land that was named after the emperor who brought death, devastation, and, subject, uh, and subjected his people. And we call Peter a racist. And so in my mind, I'm like, I kind of resonate with Pete. Why, why would I go there? You know, why would I, why would I eat this food? Why would I participate in this evangelical service? <laughs> Why would I do that? 
So when I was growing up, my mom, um, we moved out to the suburbs. I talk about this all the time. I grew up in the south side of Chicago, um, homogeneously black neighborhood. My mom moved me out to Hoffman Estates, and that's not a black neighborhood. So she moved me out there, and, uh, and when she moved me out there, she didn't have a ton of rules for me. you know. And I, I, I met a lot of people, and I got to hang out with a lot of people across cultural divides and stuff, and I learned a lot about myself and about others uh, in this space. But um, I met this, this kid named Ken, and he was... He was, a, he, was a, he was a cool dude, right? And we used to hoop together, play ball together, and everything like that. And, and he would always invite me over to his house. Always invite me over to his house. And, and, and my mom told me, when, the only one rule she had, she was like, don't go in those people's houses. That was her rule. Don't go in those people's houses. I don't know them. Don't go in their house. And, and, I, kept, and I kept pushing back and kept, like, like what, what's up? Mom, like, they're just people like you and me. You know, like, we can, we can make this work and everything. And, you know, of course, I was a obedient son, so I never did it. And then eventually, I was at the basketball court, and he just asked me in such a nice way. He's like, just, hey, you want to come over? I got, like, you know, I got some pizza, we can, you know, whatever. And I was like, he said pizza, and I was like, all right. <laughs> I got to think about it. And so I was like, all right, fine. So we walk up to his house, and um, he didn't have a key, and he just he punched these numbers in on his garage, and the door just opened up. And I was like, oh, that's pretty dope. And then, so the, the, the garage opens up, and, and I walk into the garage, and I see stacks of, like, 24 pa- packs of pop, like, of cola and stuff like that. And I'm like, like, this dude must be loaded, right? Because he has so much pop that he can't fit in his house. It's like, it's like outside of the... And so for me, my mom never, like, my mom never, like, got that much pop. So I was looking, I was like, man, this, is, this dude got it, got it made. He's got, like, cases of pop land out there. And so that became a barometer of success for me, literally. I was like, I know I made it if I can start putting pop in my garage or something like that. <laughs> So if I start storing pop in my garage, you know I got it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not there yet. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, I went to his house, ate with his family, hung out with everybody, and I thought for sure, I was like, this is, this is it. This is what life is about. This is, like, ha- having a good time and stuff like that. And I went home thinking I was Martin Luther King, you know. I, talk, I went back, talked to my mom. I was like, Ma, they eat food just like us. Except it's not seasoned the same way. It's a little different that way. But other than that, like, they eat food just like us. They they, they converse over a meal. They're having conversations, and his mom is pretty nice. And um, so, I, so I did, and she, just, and she just looked at me and stared at me. It was like, you went in those people's houses. I can't believe you went into those people's houses. And in her mind, they were unclean. They were unclean. But the reason why they were unclean was rooted in her experience. So the trauma of her life informed her orthodoxy. The experience that she had with white folks, the experience she had growing up in the 50s and the 60s, her understanding of of white folks had been shaped by that. And that experience shaped her orthodoxy. It formed her orthodoxy. So she was just like Peter. She loved God to death. She just... Countless people who would say that, that, that their lives were impacted by her, her witness. Countless people who would say, absolutely, like, my, my life's been changed because of interacting with Myrtle Green, you know? Testimonies after testimonies in her funeral when they were, were coming up. And it was an amazing testimony. But still, she held this premise, this orthodoxy, that these people are unclean. And this is what happens to us when we allow our orthodoxy to be formed by a trauma versus formed in our trauma. And that's a different thing, right? So 
Growing up in a black church, our orthodoxy has been formed within our trauma. Within our trauma, meaning that there's an orthodoxy tied to resilience and dependence on God and a faithfulness and that God is faithful throughout trials and hard times and stuff like that. That, that is rooted in the, this, this orthodoxy that comes when it's informed by our trauma. Amen? But on the other side, if we allow the trauma, our captivity, to be the thing that actually forms our orthodoxy, then we form the orthodoxy that keeps us captive. Amen? And so what we see with Peter is that he was beholden to an orthodoxy that kept him captive versus having his orthodoxy formed by his captivity. Make sense? Amen. So do you see what happens? He goes back to his homies, right? And he tells them, like, look, look, um, so people, like, they, like, a little birdie hit my ear. They said people out there shouting. They, they, they spoke in tongues. They, they, they were getting saved. And then he was like, why'd you do that, Peter? No one was celebrating. You would think he would get a hero's welcome. You would think people would be like, the gospel is being spread. People are being changed. People know, know, know people are being, people are inter- interacting with God. Like the, the world is going to be different. We're going to see the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Like you would think that would be their response, but they didn't respond that way. When he goes back to tell his friends about what, had, what he experienced in uh, Caesarea, like the, the heading said, Peter explains his actions. As if you had to explain healing. If you have to explain people receiving wholeness. Isn't that something? That the response of the people were the response of those in captivity, right? They didn't even see the liberation in it. They didn't even see the freedom in it that people were being saved. That lives were being made different. That opportunities were opening up. That the kingdom of heaven was advancing. Their priority was... You broke orthodoxy. You broke the rules. You didn't do it the right way. But then when Peter goes on to explain to them, who am I to stop God? No one questioned him after that, right? Because what Peter did is position himself in between him, themselves and God, and he said, like, who, who am I to stop God? So in this interaction, what do we see? Who's the bad guy? It's not Peter. It's not Cornelius. It's both of them, right? It's both of them. They're all subject. They're they're all tied to some level of captivity. So if you pay attention to even Cornelius' story, like you see, if you look at verse ten, chapter ten, verse seven in Acts, I know you guys don't keep your Bibles out, and some of you guys don't even bring Bibles. I'm not judging, but uh, but, uh, (laughs) uh, it says when the angel who spoke to him had gone. Uh, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. It's just an amazing thing that 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 Cornelius was very selective about who was going to get who was going to go get Peter. Now, he's a centurion, which means he had 100 men at his disposal. But he selected these three people in particular. He picked two of his servants and a devout servant and a devout soldier. Meaning that he was focusing on who was going to be the messenger, who was going to go grab Peter. And I like how Peter fronted like, God told me not to hesitate, but then I brought six people with me, just in case, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, he was cool, really. Like, he was really cool with going. And then he was like, yeah, but then I brought six more of my guys with me, just in case things popped off. So you got to be ready. So he, um, so as you see, like, Cornelius is actually wrestling with, Cornelius is, uh, is and I'm speculating here, but if Cornelius had to be selective as to who was going to go pick, uh, pick up Peter, then you wonder to what extent he's been public about his, uh, his, his beliefs. To what extent he wanted people finding out exactly what was going on, who he was going to be hosting that day or that night. 
to what extent did he want that revealed? And you have to ask yourself, like, how does Cornelius wrestle with the idea of being on one level, um, but for all intents and purposes, uh, an oppressor? Like, social, for, um, in terms of social mobility, he serves as an oppressor to um, the Jewish um, residents. And, and then on the other side of it, to participate in their, in, in their religious discourse or to participate in their um, religious um, um, liturgy. How, how, does, how, does, how does Cornelius um, somehow, how does, how does he justify that? How does he come to grips with that? How does he reconcile those differences? And so what you see is these two powerful men, one on one end, Peter, the most powerful man um, in terms of the church and advancing the kingdom of God, proximity to the kingdom of heaven. And then you have Cornelius who has apparent power and wealth given his position as a, a Roman soldier. And you see that with, within their power, they're both held captive. That they're, with all their power, with all their strength, they, they, they weren't set free. They, they could not be set free. They, they, were still, they were still held captive. And that their liberation was dependent upon their interaction with one another. And so this text affects me profoundly, given my recent, um, my recent visit to... Um, the ECC's, uh, the, the Evangelical Covenant's uh, uh, conference, midwinter. And so I went there, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a beautiful event of believers working on a ton of things. And I went there, and I asked myself a question. I said, why would people of color intentionally join this, this particular organization? Why would they choose to do this? Why would they, they join a predominantly white organization? Why would they intentionally do that? Why would they acquiesce their culture? Why would they give up their intentions? And for that most part, and then the question distilled down to us here. Why would people of color come to River City? Why, why would we choose to be a part of a community that, that is the ethos and the culture and for the most part has been predominantly white? Why would someone do that? And I ask these questions and people don't like when I ask questions because they think I'm starting fights and stuff. And, and for the most part, they're, they're, they're neutral questions. For me, and, uh, <laughs> so I asked this question, and 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 what what hit me in this text was that you don't do this sort of thing unless you're called to it, right? Like there was no way Peter could have pushed back against years and years of tradition of what is clean and unclean, right? There was no way Peter could do that unless he had been called to it, and vice versa. There's no way Cornelius would jeopardize his standing in his community, his wealth, his his power. There's no way he 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 he, he he, he, he gives that up unless he's called to do it. And like Peter, I must ask the question, if God has called them to do it, if the spirit of God is on them, who am I to stand in God's way? Amen? Who am I to stand in God's way? And so there's like three things that I would say that like has to be kind of fleshed out in our space. And I think Daniel talked about four of them, um, four things um, last week. But these three are, for me, is like in terms of personal reflection, as to how you get to a space of saying, am I called to this or not? I, I do think that, like Daniel's touched on this last week, you, you do have to get that time alone. They said that Peter was praying so hard that he was in a trance, that, that he, had, he, had, he had quieted himself to such a space that he was in a trance, that he was, that he was st- so still till, till God showed him an image. And not only did God show him an image, he had to do it three times because you know Peter's obstinate, right? He did it three times over and over again to show him, Peter, get up, kill, eat. And in, in Peter's response, I haven't put anything unclean in my mouth. And what God has said to him, what he says to all of us, do not call anything unclean that I've called clean. 
later today, we're going to take communion. We're going to talk about the things that God has made clean. God has made us clean, right? Amen. Amen. We have a tendency to try to call the things that God has made clean, unclean. Right? I do that. We do that. We, 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 we see people. We, 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 we label them. We speak about some of our circumstances. And we, we say things like, this person is unclean, unfit. They're not woke. They don't understand. He doesn't fit with our ethos, our culture. To move in this space, to be able to operate in places like River City, there must be a commitment to not call things unclean that God has called clean. And I got to tell you, it's hard. It's hard. Because clean people do some unclean things. Right? And so does that mean we, we, we abstain from rebukes? Does that, does that mean we don't push back against some, some mistakes and stuff? Absolutely not. Because clean people do some unclean things. We, number one, we definitely have to find that quiet space to actually ascertain, is this where I'm supposed to be? Is this what God's called me to? And the second thing, we have to, we have to be obedient. It's one thing to be called to something and to be asked to do something. It's another to be obedient to that call. And it comes at a significant cost for everyone. Everyone. So, like Peter jeopardized his standing with his people. He went home and the first thing they called him was a sellout. The first thing they called him was a sellout. I go home, they tell me the same thing. He jeopardized a lot. It takes a lot to be obedient when the cost is that high. Cornelius, the same thing. He jeopardized a lot. He, he, he risked embarrassment. He risked Peter having said something like, I'm not coming to your house. There's no way I'm going to do that. There's no way I'm going to go to your house. There's, there's no way you're going to get me to go to your crib. No way. And then he'd be forced to use force to make him come there. And then what? Now he's the one who's a further oppressing um, Jewish movements. He risked his standing with his community. It takes a lot to be obedient in those spaces. And this last one is you got to stand on it, right? You got to wait to hear God's call. You got to be obedient to his call. And you have to stand on his call. You got to stand on it because you got to go back to the people who will call it in question your decision making. You got to go back to the spaces and the culture and the society that will go back, that will call into question your decision making. Why would you make this choice? And he had to go explain everything. He had to sit there with people who were subordinate to him, questioning him. What kind of what, what is this decision making? Why would you make these choices? How could you ever do such a thing? Why did you sell us out? And he had to stand on that. It's costly. It's costly.
for people of color, it's, it's particularly costly in spaces where you feel the most marginalized. And that has to be said. When you feel the most silent. And for our white brothers and sisters, it's, it's extremely costly to have to navigate the, the humility that comes with it. But this is what we're built to do. This is what we've called to do. And I think the encouraging part about this all is that all this happens. You see Paul and Ananias' interaction. You see Peter and Cornelius' interaction. And then directly after these interactions, you see the culture of the church kind of shift. And then you see the church of Antioch. Things blow up. It was a catalyst. It became a catalyst. Our ability to stay at the table, to stand on the things that it called us to, has created this catalyst. And change started to happen in the world. Things started to move. It started with, the, with obedience, and it started with, with being willing to take the cost, being willing to take the hit for it. And, it, and then it moved into this movement that changed the world. I wonder to what extent will there be testimonies written of what we live and what we do? Will there be stories told of our ability to be obedient in spaces? Our commitment not to call the things that God have called clean, unclean. Our willingness to risk it all and our capacity to stand on the things that we call, think God has called us to. I wonder what would be said of us in the future. What kind of change would we have impacted? What would we look back on 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Would we say, like, man, thank God we stood on that? Amen? So today we do communion. And, um, and I, I, I believe this to be... Um, undeniably true that, that there, is, there is no way to process or have liberation when there's captivity anywhere. Because if liberation is sequestered to a corner of, your, of the world, if freedom is sequestered to a corner of the world, then it's not freedom. Amen? If freedom is sequestered to just church spaces or just affinity groups, it's not freedom. I liken it to, to a prison yard. Everybody's milling about all they want, but there's boundaries around where you can go. When you find ourselves sequestered in our liberation, that's when we know you're not free. All right? And so we don't want the fake freedom. We want the real freedom. And it, was, and it happens in the way that Cornelius and Peter brought it about. That this collective captivity that we all are part of can only, only be dismantled. When we, when we say to ourselves, we will genuinely, genuinely come to the table and release each other's chains. That my freedom is tied up in your freedom and your freedom in mine. And that liberation for me has to include liberation for you. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the cross does. That's what we celebrate in communion is that there was a there was a chains. There were chains being broken, and, but there were all chains being broken. All chains being broken. That when he shed his blood. When his flesh was opened up. That he set us free. Comprehensively. I desire that freedom here on earth as it is in heaven.
So as we begin to partake in communion, I want us to meditate on these things. I want us to pray and, and, and think, what would it look like to hear God speak to us in the spaces of our trance, right? What, 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 what needs to be bubbled up inside of me to be obedient in those spaces in that place? Will God, can God grant us the strength to stand in those spaces that we need to stand? Can we experience freedom together? All right, so we have tables on either side. Um, folks will be um, serving communion. And you can just go, go to the side, and, and elders will be in the back to pray. Uh, I'm going to pray for us right now. Blessed Father, as I look at this story, I see myself in, in, in Peter and in Cornelius, Lord. I see myself as one who would adhere to an orthodoxy that protects me and keeps me safe and with no regards for the other. An orthodoxy that limits and inhibits the advancement of your kingdom. But you would call us to an orthodoxy that transcends our trauma and our pain, Lord. You call us to a space of understanding that what you have cleaned is, is undoubtedly clean, Lord. That if we can step into obedience, that you will meet us there. I'm just amazed that through Peter's obedience and, and Cornelius' obedience, you, you, you see worship breaks out. And from worship, you see the world change, Lord. May we be obedient up to the point of worship, Lord. Not counting the cost. Giving you all of us, Lord. May as we partake in your communion, may we remember the work that you've done to make things clean. May we never blaspheme again the work of your hands by calling what you've made clean unclean, Lord. We are blessed to be together, dear Father. We're blessed to have you. Blessed to know you. May we be a blessing to others, Lord, in your holy and matchless name. This text challenged me a, a lot, <laughs> um, and my, my hope and my prayer is that it's, it's not a challenge we walk away from that, or that we limp away from, but that we engage and that we see the outcome of it all is that when we stand on the things that God has called us to, the natural outworking is worship, right? 
that we move to a space of praising him and giving him everything we got because the fruits of his labor and the fruits of our labor combined produces freedom. Amen? Amen. So, so give it all up. Give it all up. Release the orthodoxies that would prohibit you or inhibit you from engaging and crossing over thresholds and markers previously marked as uh, inaccessible. But put those things down courageously into the spaces God has called us to and stand on it stand on it go in peace amen Child that will give him their own.